Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome back to the program. This is Ryan McGuigan, and uh, welcome to the Renewed Life podcast. Today, uh, we're talking uh, to Eric Oberempt, uh, who is a uh, former addict and alcoholic. Uh, he was uh, addicted for um, uh, many years and had uh, several arrests, facing up to five years in prison. He finally agreed to go to rehab and start attending AA. Today, he is a podcast host and operates a successful roofing company and gives back to the addiction community through his program, Roofers in Recovery, where they sponsor addicts in need of treatment and his upcoming documentary where he shows the similarities between celebrities and average Joes suffering from addiction. How's it going, Eric? Thank you very much. So, uh, yeah, again, Eric Obremt, um, I have, uh, I've been clean and sober for almost 14 years now. Um, and it took a really long time to figure out the why behind that, uh, because I didn't have the story of like kind of what you were relating to with the whole pain thing. Right. Um, more of my pain was, was mental. Um, you know, obviously, yeah, I worked really hard when I was young. Uh, I started, I started in the roofing industry when I was literally 10 years old. Uh, my grandfather started our company way back in the 60s before I was born. And I moved in with my grandparents when I was very young, when I was seven. And so my grandpa basically became my dad at that point and started teaching me, you know, hard work, right? Get on the roof. He'd throw me an ax and I'd have to start chopping tar. <coughs> Excuse me. I'd have to get up and start using, you know, those big five gallon plastic cement buckets and start plasticking around soil pipes. And so I learned at a very young age what hard work uh, looked like. And as I got older, you know, for people to hopefully kind of relate, you know, I, I was in high school and yeah, I partied and, you know, I, I did the things, but I also played sports and was very good at sports. And so like when we played at football season, nobody drank, nobody used, nobody did anything yep. because winning was more important. Right. Yep. Um, and then we called baseball drinking season because nobody gave a shit. Right. So baseball was drinking season. You did what you wanted. Um, I ended up foregoing playing college and sports or playing sports in college because I wanted to go to a bigger school and just have fun and party. Yep. And that's what I ended up doing. I ended up going to the University of Nebraska at Lincoln because I was like, this is the place to go if I'm going to party and have a good time and, you know, not have to worry about uh, any responsibilities, really. And so I did the college thing for a while, you know, and I'd go to class every once in a while and I, I drank, but I was always a drinker. And the funny part of this story is, is that. I was always the anti-drug guy. Yeah. I was always, if there were drugs around, I was like, yep. you fucking dirty drug taker yep. guy, right? Like I was always super anti-drugs. And as I started getting older, I, I ended up dropping out of school, calling my grandpa and I was like, hey, I'm all in. Like I'm all in on this roofing thing. Like give me more, more leads. I'll go sell more stuff. I started selling more, estimating more <clears throat> to get out of the actual trade of doing the work, right? But then you start making a little bit more money, right? So now you have access to be able to buy more stuff. Then I went through a couple of divorces and I, I was getting DUIs along the way. So I, I started, I got my first DUI when I was 19 years old, got my first DUI, and then I would go every three years. So I'd be on probation maybe for like a year, year and a half, and I'd be good. And then I'd start to, tailspin and I start to self-sabotage and then I get popped again. And it usually always correlated with a girlfriend or a wife getting divorced or breaking up, 
always had to do with a girl. And so, or not had to do with, but it always correlated in that timeline, right? And after my second, after my second divorce, I just kind of went off a ledge and I didn't give a shit anymore. Um, I was, I was the fattest cokehead you ever met. I started doing coke when I was about 26. I started selling coke after I paid retail the first time. And I was like, that's really expensive. I was like, can I just buy a bunch of it and sell it to people? And they're like, sure you can, Eric. And so they gave me whatever I wanted so I could go sell it. And I was 310 pounds, big, fat, bloated head, uh, just looked horrible. There was no way I was going to live to see 40, right? I was going to be lucky if I saw 30. And I went for two and a half years about like that. And I ended up getting my fourth offense felony DUI. And what was interesting was about three months before that, I tell this story in my keynote that I give, but about three months before that, it was actually my 30th birthday and I was having a party at my house and there was probably 30, 40 people in this little tiny Cracker Jack, you know, starter house that I was living in. And I was sitting at the table and I had a big glass table and everybody would rip lines off that glass table. And we play a game called snakes where you'd make the biggest, fattest line that you could and you'd go as hard as you could for as long as you could until you puked or, you know, before you threw up or died, I guess was the second option. And I was playing this snake game. I was playing this snake game. And all of a sudden I had this really weird moment of clarity and silence where all the music went away. I can literally remember this like it was yesterday. All the music went away. All the people went away. And I looked up at the ceiling and I'm not like a religious dude. I'm not like any of those things. And I look up and I was just like, how do I make this stop? I don't know how to make this stop. And that lasted 10 seconds, right? It felt like an hour, but it lasted 10 seconds. And then all of a sudden, all of the noise started coming back. All the people started coming back in my head. I went right back to that table and I ripped that line. And I went hard for another three, four, five months. And then I got my fourth offense felony DUI and had all kinds of coke on me, somehow dodged all those charges. That's a whole nother story. And I still didn't quit. I still kept going after I got out of jail. I went to jail for three or four days. I got out. I still kept going. I was forced to go get an alcohol evaluation. Anybody that's ever had a DUI or an MIP or anything like that knows the old alcohol evaluation. (laughs) And I went and got an alcohol evaluation. And this guy, Mark, told me, he said, you need to go to inpatient treatment. And I was like, fuck you. I'm like, I got a mortgage. I got shit to pay for. I don't have 30 days to go sit in an inpatient. And I'll never forget, he gave me his card. And I brought his card home. And it sat next to my couch on my end table. And I used it as a Coke funnel to put Coke into baggies. And it was covered in residue, like to the point where you couldn't even see his name. And about three months later, I literally looked over at this card and I picked it up and being a cokehead, I licked the, licked the fucking <laughs> card so I can see it, right? Use it to have a little gummy. And, and I look at the card and I see his name and his phone number. And I picked up the phone and I called him. And I said, 
I think it's time. I think I'm ready. And that wow. was when I decided to, and that was when I decided to go to treatment with still not necessarily wanting to get sober, yeah. but wanting, but wanting to figure out how to not go to prison. And I went to treatment in this little town in Nebraska called O'Neill, Nebraska, in the middle of nowhere. Treatment centers are smart, by the way. They put treatment centers in the middle of fucking nowhere, middle of nowhere. Yeah. so that you can't get away, right? And back then, we didn't have Ubers or anything like that. So, like, to get a cab or a taxi to drive you back to Omaha was going to be, like, $1,000, right? And I right. didn't have $1,000. And I spent I, – I was there for a total of a month. It took about two weeks before I had a realization, I was in a lecture hall, somebody was speaking, and in the middle of the lecture, I was looking around and I just went, holy shit, I'm in rehab. And I said it out loud verbally. And everybody stopped and looked at me like, what the fuck, what is wrong with this guy? And I just had this moment and I was like, normal people don't fucking go to rehab. <laughs> They just, they just don't like, there's nobody in this room that's fucking okay. Right? Like even the counselors, right? Most of the counselors were fucking drunks as well. Yeah. Right. At one, at one time. At one point. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, maybe, and this has become like my mantra to everybody that I work with. I'm like, maybe I just need to shut the fuck up and listen. Maybe it's time for that. And so I opened that door that they talk about so much in treatment and rehab and recovery is just open that door a little bit to be willing, to be willing to listen. And I decided that I was willing to listen. And I started doing the steps and I started working with the sponsor and I started doing all the stuff and I went home and this is no joke. I went home and my old drug dealer came over to my house and he goes, so what are you going to do? He goes, are you coming back out with us or are you going to do this sober bullshit? And I said, give me a month. He goes, give me a month. I go, give me a month to try this. I'm like, and if I hate it, I'll be back out with you guys. I said, but if I get something out of it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see what happens. I'm like, I invested a lot of time and money into going to this place, so give me a month. And I gave it a month, and I found a sponsor, and I found people who gave a shit about what actually happened to me as a human. And that was it. And I was like, nope, this is the life that I want to figure out how to live. And so that's how I, that's how I got to where I am, you know, I, or at least to where I got to a point where I was willing to continue doing the work so that I could become that human that I was supposed to be and not the piece of shit that I was living as for so many years. What, what was it about those people that, or, or how did they make you feel? Uh, or, or what was it that they did that they, that, that you felt that they cared about you and I, and I mean your spirit? your, your soul. I had, I had never been around like the, the closest person to me was my grandfather. Right. Um, and kind of like your dad, he was the person that I had my first drink with. Right. Yeah. And you know, I was, God, I don't even remember how old I was, but I want to say I was probably like, he probably gave me a beer when I was 10 or 12. Right. Um, but he was the person that I, he was the person that I drank with a lot. Um, he was my, he was my best friend and I knew that he cared about me though. He just didn't know, he didn't know what he was doing in the moment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I realized that all of these people that were trying to help me at this facility, I was like, why are you so nice? 
Yeah. <laughs> I was like, why are you so nice to me? Like, don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I am a pile of shit? Like, don't you know all of the things that I've done? Don't you know the people that I've hurt? And like, they did because I had to fucking tell them, right? So like, they knew all of these things that I'd done in my past and they still claimed to love me. And they still told me what I needed to do to be better. And they still held me accountable to those things. Because what I learned on later on in life was, especially running a business, is accountability equals love. But a lot of people see it the other way because they think accountability is, is a bad word, right? And that you're being hard on somebody. But like, if you don't hold people accountable, you don't really give a shit about what happens to them. And these people care. They're like, you need to go to meetings. You need to do 90 meetings in 90 days. You need to get a sponsor. You need to do the steps. And then you get a sponsor that like loves you and you get to share all of this stuff with that you've been holding in for so long because you didn't feel comfortable having that conversation with anybody. And you let all of this stuff out and you're let, able to let it go and give it to God and all this, you know, the different things that we do in, in, in doing the 12 steps. And I'd never felt like, I, I don't want to say like, I didn't think my family loved me. Like I know that they did, but they didn't know, they didn't know how to love me in this space, right? Because they didn't get me. So what I run into a lot is I go speak at conferences or I, I you know, speak on things like this. And I'll get phone calls or messages on social media. And it's always a mom that messages me about her son. Yeah. What can I do to help my son? And I'm like, nothing. I'm like, are you an alcoholic? And she's like, no. And I'm like, well, then you don't get him. I was like, you can't help him. Like, all you can do is be there for him and support him in everything that he's going to have to do to get this figured out. But I'm like, but you can't do shit because he's not going to respect necessarily your quote unquote opinion on how he needs to get better because you've never done it, right? You don't want to work for a company with, for some guy that's never sold a roof, right? If you're going to get into right. roofing, you want to work for a guy that sold hundreds and thousands of roofs, right? And had hundreds and thousands of them built and knows how to do that step by step by step so that they can teach you step by step by step how to sell a roof, right? It's the same thing in recovery. We, that's why we have to work with other alcoholics and other addicts is because we have done the work now and we actually understand how to do it. And so that's why we have to find these people in our communities to be able to, to, be able to give back and, and to direct people to that. The people in that treatment center they knew who I was and they still loved me. They didn't judge me for it. And they wanted to give me tools to be better. And I'd never had that kind of, I'd never had that kind of support because I didn't understand it until then. And that was what changed my life. And it made me want to be more like them, right? right. No chance. I want to be a fucking counselor. Like, I don't want, you know what I mean? Like not a job I want, right? I don't want to bust my ass and, make $35,000 a year, right? Like I have no desire to be a counselor. Like those people do God's work, like a thousand percent. I don't want to do that. But in the things that I do now with a nonprofit, I get to do it. And that's what I tell everybody on my team. I'm like, 
guys, we need to sell a shitload of widgets so that we can do the things to be able to give back and help. I can't help people with the nonprofit. I can't help, you know, whatever it is that we all want to help. For me, it's drugs, right? And I want to be able to right. give back and send people to treatment. I can't do that if we don't sell a bunch of fucking widgets, right? And widgets for me is a roof. And so that's like my, that's my purpose is, is it's not the money and the tangible things that we get. Yeah. I like nice things. Who doesn't, right? Like, and I'm still going to buy cool shit, but if I don't have the capital and the assets, I can't help the people that help me the same way. And so that's, that's my, that, that's why I care so much. How many brothers and sisters did you have? One sister, uh, one sister, like I said, parents got divorced when I was seven. So I lived in a odd, you know, like kind of odd situation. Obviously I had my grandpa and my grandma who were kind of my mom and my dad, but my sister was there and my mom was there too, but she was living in the basement and trying to go back to school because my dad had taken all the money and taken off and, you know, married somebody else. Um, and so like, she was kind of doing her thing. She was always there and like, never like, you know, uh, absent. Uh, but I just gravitated towards my grandfather. So I basically grew up in the fifties, right? Like I grew up in the fifties, the same way that my grandpa's kids would have grown up when it was really the early nineties, right? It was late eighties, early mid nineties when I was growing up. Um, but I, I, I was raised as a 50s, 60s kid, right? Um, I remember just as an example, my senior year of high school, you know, when you're a senior, everybody has a big senior party, right? And I lived in Nebraska and somebody went and got somebody's land that they could, you know, lock the gates and everybody would go out to the land and ha have a bonfire and park trucks around it and get drunk all night, right? And that's your senior party. And I remember going to my grandpa and I was like, hey, Grant, senior parties tonight. And I know that, you know, like we've got a job tomorrow, but like, can I go to the senior party instead? And he was like, I don't give a fuck what you do, but you got work at 6 a.m. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I don't know if you heard me, but I said like, there's a senior party tonight. So can I go to that? And he's like, yeah, I don't know if you heard me. I don't give a shit what you do, but you got work tomorrow at six. I'm like, fuck. And so I literally had to make a decision in that moment as a senior in high school, 17, 18 years old, I didn't go to my senior party because I had to work the next day. And then that's just kind of an example of like what I grew up in. So like I had, I had a, I had a, a good childhood because I had my grandpa, but a weird childhood because at 12, 10, eight, nine, 10 years old, I had to go to court for the divorce and like testify against my dad in a judge's chambers alone. Um, that's fucking wow. weird. Kids shouldn't have to do that. Right. Um, you know, like they, they shouldn't have to be part of that. My, my dad would show up at my house. My grandpa chased him off the fucking steps with a baseball bat. Right. Um, like just weird shit, but in the same breath had an amazing family unit though. Right. So I don't feel like I missed anything, but grew up with my grandfather who drank every day may or may not have been an alcoholic, but drank every day and normalized that to me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. And normalize yeah. that just like your story. Right. And normalize yeah, yeah. that. And that was what we did on Christmas, big Christmas Eve party. Everybody came over and got drunk when I was 14. I was like, that's when I could drink every Christmas. Right. Like grandpa's like, yep, that's what you get to do on Christmas Eve. You get it drink, go ahead. And normalized it. And so I, I don't blame anybody, obviously, for my alcoholism. Like that was going to manifest itself no matter what. Yep. Um, yep. 
but just looking back, you can see all those little things that happen right over time um, that made it much easier for me to get to where I was going to end up eventually anyway. Do you, did you, um, I, I know that I, I listened to a couple of your podcasts and uh, j just for the, for the viewers, um, yeah. you, you spend a lot of time um, talking about like under underlying issues and, 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 and you know, I never felt like I belonged anywhere. Um, I was even playing sports and winning championships and all this stuff. Like I love being part of a team and I love being part of something, but I, ne but I, I even, even you win all the awards and, you know, you do all these things. And I always still felt like an outsider. I still always felt like, man, I sure would still like to be in that group though. Right. And I always, I, I always felt like I was on the outside looking in and what drugs and alcohol gave to me was an opportunity to feel like I was part of a thing. Right. And everybody wanted to be around me if I had enough booze or if I had enough Coke, especially right. if I had enough Coke, because then girls wanted to be around you and they would be around you and the party would go until you ran out. And then as soon as you fucking ran out or as soon as you run out, you can look around the room and see how long it takes and everyone's gone. And nobody comes back until you pick up the phone. And you go, I got re-upped. I'm set up. Like, come on back. And, and I think then all of a sudden that made it even worse. Right. And so that I'd want more and more and more because it could do two things. It would mask my insecurities and it would make me then feel part of that group because again, then I'd get them to come back. Right. And I just, I, I just wanted, I just wanted to be comfortable in my own skin and be okay with who I was. And I had no idea how to do that, which is why I am so passionate today about being authentic, right? It's why I named the podcast, be authentic or get the fuck out because right. I, I, I want people to know that they don't have to be what other people want them to be, right? You get to be whoever it is that you are and we are all fucking different. We are all different in some respect, and it's okay to be different. And some of us don't know who the fuck we are yet, right? And we need to maybe spend a little time and maybe spend a little money to figure that out so that we can be comfortable in our own skin. So what did I do? I started making my own groups, right? I mean, that was literally my answer. I was like, well, if I don't fit in to all these other ones. And I don't want to be a follower. Cause I think that was another thing. I didn't like following people. Yeah. Um, yep. I was like, I'll make my own shit. Right. It's why I've never had a partner in any of my businesses. Um, it's why, you know, I, I joined groups and stuff with masterminds and things like that, but it's why I launched my own group and why I launched my own mastermind, because I want to facilitate these things so that I can help other people feel part of something and not feel left out. And hopefully I do a good job at that because I know the pain that comes from feeling alone. And there is no worse pain than feeling alone and laying in your bed saying, I don't care if I wake up. Oh, there, is, there, there is no worse pain than that. And so I, I wanna be able to facilitate that for other people that are going through that pain so that they can realize that they don't have to, they don't have to be in pain anymore. Right. We're all making choices every day. Right. We're all making choices. And the only choice that I have, as we all know, is whether or not I pick up the first drink. Right. That's my choice that I get to make every day. I don't get many choices after I do that.
but we all have a choice. And so everybody's like, what do I do? What do I do? And I'm like, how about today? You don't fucking drink just today. Right. Just don't, don't drink today. I'm like, and then let's jump on the phone tomorrow. Tell me if you did what you said you were going to do. And then if you do that, then let's deal with tomorrow, tomorrow. And then maybe we'll, then we'll go to a meeting and then we'll talk to somebody and then we'll explore all these crazy things that you're talking about that are above my pay grade of, you know what I mean? Like, let's do a fourth and a fifth and figure out if your childhood fucked you up and you know, whatever. But like everybody gets so far ahead, especially alcoholics. We all want to read ahead, right? We all want to go from step one to fucking nine, right? And ignore everything in between because like we're smarter than everybody else in the room. So like we can do that. And that's why we need mentors and people in our lives to be able to tell us to slow down mm. and shut the fuck up and listen. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I, I, I had to shut up for, I, I had one of those old AA, uh, I guess we, well, the old 12 step program guys. And uh, I was told to shut the fuck up for the first year that I yeah. was there. And, I, and nobody wanted to hear a word out of, uh, from me. And I, I think it was, I was probably like 10 months in and I had, I had finished my steps and that's when they allowed me to say something. So it wasn't quite a year, but it was, you know, when I yeah. finished my steps and, and really why I was in such a rush to finish them was that, um, you know, un, unlike everything else in my life that I wasn't a cheat, I didn't cheat things, um, but I would look for, um, I'd look to cut corners. And I was a procrastinator uh, all my life and everything. Uh, but with, with sobriety, I, I, I did not do that. And, and I did everything that they told me, including do not date anybody for the first year. And uh, I, didn't, was, I didn't listen to that. Yeah, a lot of people <laughs> did it. But the, um, it, it, it kind of, if I had, I had an opportunity, I, I guess uh, I might not have abided by that. But, but I just didn't. I, I stayed yeah. away from women. I was, I was a hermit for about a year. I wish um, I would have. I wish I would have listened. But yeah. <laughs> I saved a lot of money. A lot yeah. of money I saved uh-huh. uh, during that first year. Because when, I, when I, I did then start to date, uh, boy, I, I started to date a lot. But um, because I, I, I thought to myself, I'm like, you know, I saw a lot of guys making that kind of 12-step or 13-step mistake. Yeah. Where they would find they would find people in recovery, and I saw a lot of that in my first year, and I just said, you know, I, I don't think I really want anybody in recovery because and it's predatory. Yeah, well, not for me. Um, oh, I, I didn't. Not for I'm not I, saying for I, you. Oh, from, I'm just from yeah, men, like, yeah, men, yeah, yeah. like men, like men do that it, a lot. Yeah, it becomes really predatory. Right, and I um, I, I just thought for myself, I'm like, Jesus, yeah, I, I'm screwed screwed up enough. Like, I, how many screwed up people do you need in a relationship? <laughs> so so I, I, I didn't date people that were um, in recovery for a while. And um, I then met my, my, my current wife, and she's in recovery. Um, but she wasn't in recovery when I met her. And um, we, we went out for a while. We dated for a while. And then finally, I just said, hey, you know, you're a lot younger than I am. You still have a lot of fun, I guess, out there for you. I just can't, I can't be around this kind of, kind of fun. Uh, so, you know, why don't we take a break? But it wasn't really a break. I'm like, I, I, I just can't be around this because yeah. it's a little bit, it's a little bit too much. 
And really what it was is I was concerned about how much she drank. And uh, when you are an alcoholic, um, I, I don't know about you, but like, you know, for, for me, I'm old school 12 step and it, this is my problem and nobody else's. I'm not a prohibitionist. I don't tell people that they can't drink right. at all. And if I feel uncomfortable with the way that you drink and it's my obligation to get the fuck out of the room. Yep. Uh, and if you're in my house, it's your obligation to get the fuck out. When I tell you and, to. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and all, all, you know, but peace, love, love you to death, but just, yep. I, I can't be around this anymore. And, yep. and that with her, I had to tell her. And, um, and I was very, very pleased about eight months later when she came and, uh, we had been communicating and she was going to meetings and doing her steps and, and uh, eight months later, we got back together, and um, the both of us have been sober and happy since, and we've been married now for seven years. That's an amazing have, story. Good for you. Yeah, it, thank you. I, I appreciate it because for the longest time, I, I, I never thought that I would ever find – I never thought that I would be married again, ever. Yeah, uh, me either. I never, me either. I never wanted to. Uh-uh. Uh, I, I, never, I, I never thought it would I, – I didn't know what it would do for me uh, until I met my wife. And when I met her – I, I said to myself, I, I, I can live without her for about 24 hours. That's about it. <laughs> wow. So, and she's a big time lady. So she uh, travels a lot with work. I travel, I have my intervention business and I, I leave home. But when I do my interventions, I will do an intervention. Whole, I try to do it at the end of the week. Um, and I do them in the morning because I try to get the intervention over with. If it's successful, there's a four o'clock flight, which will get me to West Palm. I can drop off my person and then I can literally stay on the plane or just get back on the same plane that I was and go right back home. And the people from one of the re, re, uh, rehab facilities will pick them up right from the airport. Interesting. I didn't so, know I, I didn't know that about you. You have an intervention business. That's cool. Yeah. Shit. So I have been, um, so when, I, when I, I quit drinking and I went back to work, and I told my first clients that, that, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to represent you unless you get some treatment. Uh, then I would get people and they'd say, well, where we, where do I get treatment? And, and I just started bringing people back to the place that I went. Right. And, Cause that's what I knew. And that's what and, we do uh, with Roofers in Recovery. We literally aligned with the place that I went to treatment. And it's the most amazing thing when people get out and it's like, we have this like bond now. Bond, the connection, like alumni. Yeah. 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 Like for real, isn't that, that's so, such a yeah. real thing. Yep, I take them to. Um, I mean, I have facilities all over the all over the country, um, but I I take them primarily to about five different places okay. uh, that I know very well, and I know the the programs very well. I didn't. I uh, one of them I went to. Uh, the other four I didn't. Uh, but a lot thank, of the thank people. God, that, thank God you only went to one. What's, what's interesting about about my story? So when I got my fourth, when I got my fourth, I didn't know it at the time. And my lawyer was actually a buddy of mine who, like, I drank and sold cocaine to. Um, and so, like, we partied together, right? And he didn't tell me this or he didn't know. But the judge that I had, it turned out I found out a year or two later, was actually in recovery. Yeah. And my lawyer was smart enough to say, if you don't go to treatment, like, you are fucked for sure. You're getting one to five years in prison for sure, if you don't go to treatment. But if you go to treatment, there's an opportunity to maybe get less time. And I was like, okay, well, I can do math. So I'll go, you know, 30 days in treatment is better than one to five years in prison. And so I came back 
and I was doing the deal and I was going to meetings and I had a sponsor and he showed me grace and he gave me, he gave me the, 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 the lower sentence. And so much time went by where I was, you know, doing steps and figuring stuff out. And it probably took me five, six years. And I realized what a gift it was though, of what he gave me. He literally saved my life, right? He threw me in jail for 90 days, which was the minimum. And he didn't let me out right away because I, I was approved for house arrest. And he said, nah, fuck you. You're sitting in there for a while, right? Because it was in district court and it was a felony. So like you couldn't just get out, right? Like the judge had to yeah, approve yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Ju- I know. Ju- judge had to approve it. And so I'm waiting there every day looking at the CO. Like, is my name on the list? He's like, not today, fucker. Um, and it was, <laughs> it was every day. Like, is today the day? Is today the day? And some, and some years later, I didn't know how to find this guy because um, obviously like judges aren't on Facebook, right? And you're not just going to go no, fucking no. find a judge, right? And so my current like um, business attorneys uh, are obviously well connected in, in the area that I grew up. And I was like, if I write this letter, I'm like, can you at least get it to him? Mm-hmm. And I wrote, I wrote a letter and told him, thank you. And I was like, I mm-hmm. want you to know that, you know, you probably had... 3,000 me's in front of you over the years, if not more, right? Because he wasn't a young guy. And I was like, you probably had, you know, thousands of me's in front of you. And you probably gave a lot of them a chance and an opportunity and a break. And a lot of them probably pissed it away. And I'd like you to know that there was at least one that didn't. There was one that didn't piss away the opportunity that you gave me. And now I'm doing everything I can to give back to be able to try and help the people that are in the same position. It'll probably be in front of you again someday. So I gave it to my attorneys. They said they delivered it. Obviously I didn't exactly get a phone call from judge Hardigan, uh, <laughs> letting me know that he got it, but at least I got here. The, here's, here's the point of that story. I got to do that. I got to yeah. have an opportunity to do that and say, thank you to somebody who sentenced me to jail, right? I got to send a letter to somebody who threw me in jail to say thanks. That shit doesn't happen unless you make a change in your life and a, as, as we call it, a psychic change, right? Like, unless you have that, that, that moment and, you, and, and over time you have this psychic change of exactly who, changing exactly who you are, um, I wouldn't, I, I mean, who the fuck thinks that that is a thing that someone would ever do is thank a judge for sending them to jail. And I got, the, and I got um, to do that. I, I it, that doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me that, that, that you, you would do that. Um, cause it doesn't surprise me that somebody who would be a grateful for the 90 days that they got. Not many people say that, um, I, I'm telling you, had you been my client for your first DUI, that had been the that probably would have been the end for you. It, it, it probably had you and I known one another. Yeah. Um, that it could have, and I'm not blaming your lawyer. It's just, but it it, it it is what it is. I mean, this literally is my expertise, and it it's 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 sort of my wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, and the because a a person that that has a moral compass, which is what you have. Um, you know, early on when we were talking, you were talking about your grandfather, who your grandfather is the most seminal 
um, relationship that you have in your life. I could tell that just from you, t- you're just emoting. Um, and, I, and we're, and we're on, uh, we're on a podcast. I, right. I can't even see it hardly, but I can feel that truth from you. Um, and whatever it was that your, your grandfather, you know, gave you, the thing that made you skip your senior party because you knew that your family obligation was more important. That's what I believe. Whatever, whatever made you do that is what a made you who you are, made you get sober and made you write that letter, made you be happy with the 90 days, but really made you the sober person that you are now helping other people. Have you ever tried to identify what that is? Discipline? Is it? Because I got the same thing in me. And it was, it's kind of odd. The person that I kind of blame, I don't blame for my alcoholism. I was going to be an alcoholic anyways. But there was a lot of shit that my old man did that, that kind of helped me along. But the odd thing was, is that the same person who kind of helped me become an alcoholic gave me the thing that I needed to get the hell out of there in the first place. And a lot of that had to do with when I was in rehab and I have that same thing in common with you. And I was going to ask you about this. What role does guilt and shame play or did it play in your recovery? Did it hinder your recovery or did it help your recovery? Because I know for me that nobody necessarily guilted or shamed me. I did that to I lived in guilt and shame because I, because every relationship I had, I fucked up every person I was around. I did something horrible to them um, because I only thought about myself and I never thought about anybody, never thought about others, only thought about me and how a certain situation would affect me. Um, The guilt and shame that I had for so many years, the hardest part was being able to have the conversations to forgive myself for the things that I'd done and for the people that I'd hurt. Um, that was the only way because, because like you said, the guilt and the shame give you the opportunity or give you the ability to make that next step, right? Because you're like, there is something better. I need to be better. But then once you start that process, you have to figure out how to get rid of it. So it's the catalyst maybe to get you moving, but you can't fucking live in it. You got to let it go. You got to shed that skin at some point. Right. And, and that only happens by doing the work. Um, but I think that was probably one of the hardest things for me to do in this journey of sobriety was letting go of the guilt and the shame because I wanted to own it because I thought it would keep me going. Right. I thought it would keep me going down that path because it's like if I forget right. that and I think that, man, you got it all figured out. Here's one thing. my I remember my counselor asked me before I left uh, treatment and she said, what are you the most afraid of leaving? And I said, getting better. I was, uh, I was deathly afraid of getting better because I knew the minute that I got better in my mind, right. Or got clean or wasn't drinking anymore that I was going to then automatically assume I had it all figured out. And every fucking time I think I got shit figured out. Uh, Oh, okay. (laughs) I piss it right down the drain. 
Right, right. <laughs> and I was so scared of that. So you had a history of, of pink. Did you have a history of pink clouding? Uh, I never tried to get sober before, but I. Had, uh, okay. But but I had a history. I had a history of self sabotage, of you know, like I said in the beginning, get a DUI, be good for a little while, and then figure you know, like have a relationship with with a gal, whatever it is, and then give it enough time. And if things are really good, I am going to figure out a way to fuck it up. Fuck this up, yeah. Every single time. Every single time. Like, there is nothing in my history, in my past, other than what I'm living now, that says otherwise. <laughs> there, is, there is no other story. Like, no, 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 you did this. Nope, then I fucked that up. Like, I fucked up everything until I was able to learn that that didn't have to be me anymore. Right. And to forgive myself for all of the shit that I did, um, not forget about it, but forgive myself for it. Then I was able to move on and have a family and have a wife now and have a daughter. I've got a daughter and a wife today that have never seen me drink. They don't know that person. They've never met that fucking human. There's only like four people in my life still today that know that guy from 15 years ago. Right. And there's all these new people in my life. And they're like, dude, I don't even believe you, right? Like people come to a roofers and recovery meeting and they're like, yeah, easy for you. You were never like me. Like you're you. And it's like, dude, like I don't want to sit here and have a drunk log, but like you don't have a fucking story that's going to one up. Like we've all lived the same thing. It just happens to be I'm a little bit further removed from it and I've done some work, yeah. right? Like that's all it is. And I'm one drink away. Like I know exactly what would happen. If I had a drink today, within two weeks, within two weeks minimum, because I would white knuckle. I've thought this whole yep. thing through, like I'm crazy, right? I'm an alcoholic. I've thought this whole thing through. I'm like, the first day if I drink, I'll be okay. And I could, I could have a drink and I would be fine. And I would be like, and I would all day, I'd be like, I'm not having another one. I'm not having another one. I'm going to show these fuckers that I can have one. And then the next day I would probably have two. And then within a week or so, it would just be the whole bottle and I'd have Coke delivered and I'd lose my family and I'd lose my daughter. And it would probably take two to three weeks max because I could white knuckle one or two drinks probably for a week or two. And then I just know that I couldn't. Like I have literally had dreams. I, I just know exactly what would happen. And the fact that I know is the reason that I just don't have the first one. And it just makes my right. life so much fucking easier. <laughs> right. I got, I got to go grab a, um, I gotta go. I'll be able to talk to you and walk. I gotta go grab a uh, a, a battery or a charger. Okay. But um, my 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 wife and I have a deal, and um, similar uh, to to yours. And it's I always tell her if you ever see me drinking, I want you to leave me immediately, because the only the only chance that that we have if I ever started drinking again is if you left me. And I'm like I don't want you to. To stick around for one second, I want you to just kick me out of the house and tell me to go. Because, you know, I, I don't need this anymore in my life. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I want to go just like that again because I know that's how I get sober. I, I get sober when you take away the things that I love. And I said, you know, what got me sober before, what nearly killed me was when she took my kids away from me. I have never and had that conversation, but I'm going to now. Thank you for that. Yep. Yep, and because I tell her, and I'm like, the only way that I'll that our daughter will be able to keep her daddy is if you take her away from me. Oh my and god! And that that will get me 
back to rehab immediately on my, and I'm like, I don't need you to bring me. I'll find my way. I know how to get there. And, um, and I'll come back in 30 days and I'll sleep on the porch. And at, when you're ready, you can let me back in the house. And these liquid, like, like the seltzer with, with vodka in them now. It, and I'm like, oh. you guys, th- th- this is like highway robbery. You're not even trying anymore. No. You're not even flavoring this shit. You're no. Just, <laughs> no. You never see a, a real alcoholic drinking. Yeah, you never see a real alcoholic drinking those anyway, though, I don't think. No. Yeah. You, you can white always claw? tell. If you're, if you're drinking a White Claw, you'd be like, mm, you're a normie. Like, you're fine. <laughs> what kind of percentage do those things have in them? Is it like a beer or is it more? I think it's less. I think it's less. Because it's not vodka in it. Oh, yeah, it is. Is it? <sighs> With White Claw, yeah. You're thinking of like the um, the light, like um, the, the Bud Light ones. Bud Light makes seltzer too. That oh. alcohol is melt from – so that alcohol is made from, from malt. Okay. But how you make the alcohol doesn't really matter. Yeah, no. So, uh-uh. I don't know. My wife drinks a couple of those every once in a while and like because my wife's normal. Right. And so like, she'll have a couple of drinks and like, whatever, she doesn't care. And I don't care. You know, like, I'm like, don't fuck. She has a number though. It's three. And I know that if she has more than three, I'm like, sleep in the other fucking room or go get a hotel. I'm like, cause I ain't dealing with you. But like, but she like, but she drinks those and like, they don't affect her. Like, cause she's not allowed to drink hard alcohol though. Cause she is part Irish. And so I was yeah. like, you don't get to drink hard alcohol because you start fights and punch people in the mouth you know, when you do. So like, let's just not do that. Um, but that's hilarious. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, I don't know what the world's come to. Like, whatever happened to just taking a bottle and just fucking putting it down like a man, right? And go to rehab. <laughs> <laughs> we had a major pop star from the 1960s and 70s. Her son went to rehab with us too. And for some particular reason, I don't know why, but he decided it would be a really good idea to come back and rob the place. So he came back at like two o'clock in the morning and he stole all the televisions out of the rehab place. And then he took them into like, like downtown Palm beach gardens or something and pawned them. (laughs) The kid's mother's the kids, the kid's mother's like a billionaire and he's stealing TVs from the rehab that he's in. Yeah, it's just rather, it's rather strange behavior. But I always told people, I'm like, you know, that, man, there is, there is definitely not a movie, but like a movie with like two, two sequels in it about yeah. like rehab. Because in, in most of the movies that I've seen about rehab, they're, they're not all that good. Because they really don't show you, I don't know about your experience, but how much fun it was. And I, and I think, and this is what I tell a lot of my clients, and I'm like, Expect to have a lot of fun in rehab. Don't tell your wife that or your husband, but expect to have a lot of fun. And it's not bad fun. It's good fun. And they're like, well, what do you mean good fun? And I go, you're going to belly laugh with people that have been feeling the same way that you've been feeling for a really long time. And they've held the same secrets that you've been keeping for a very long time. And everybody really wants to unburden themselves. And everybody wants to just find a, a soul that they can that, that they can talk to and they can relate to. So, you know, don't be surprised if, if you have a lot of laughter when you're there, because I certainly did. I don't and, know about you. And, and, and remember that a rehab 10 is like a four in real life. Right. If you're a guy like that, that that was always that's a joke with my buddy, because like you'd go in like, oh, my God, look at her. 
right? Yeah. There was there was always that, and it was like, and then all of a sudden, because they came in just as messed up as you, yeah, right. And nobody and everybody like the point of that is don't start a relationship in fucking rehab, right? No. Like for people that are going to rehab, it's like you go in there and you have this weird connection with people because you're there together. And it's like, if you've got a male female outfit that you're going to don't bang people in rehab because really mm. bad stuff is going to happen. If you do, I saw so many people get kicked out, you know, not have the opportunity to stay because they were more concerned about getting together with somebody during rehab. Like if anybody is watching and ever does go to rehab, man, that is, that is the big, like, I didn't, I didn't do that. Um, but it's like impossible not to cross your mind, you know, when you're there, like it's a real thing for people that are going and like, man, if there's ever a suggestion of like, go to rehab and like you said, enjoy it, right? Enjoy the people that you're getting to spend time with because like you're there in this common bond and you're on this ship together. Right. Yeah. I, I, I had that um, experience when I was there. We, we had a completely separate male and female facility. Um, the only ones that were together uh, were actually the one that Larry was in was the 50 and over community. Mm. Uh, the 50 and over community was a separate unit and they had males and females together. Uh, when I went to rehab, I think I was 36. Um, and so there were no females around, but there were a couple of the younger guys that would sneak over across the pond yep. to the, uh, to the girl facility. I, I never did that. Um, I had just gotten divorced and I had, I was really depressed and I, all I could think about was my kids. And that was sort of the last thing that was on my mind. Yeah. Um, and which is probably why I, I stayed single for so long or didn't date anybody for so long because I just, you I really kids. wanted to re and I want, and I needed to my, and they were only two and three. Mm. So, um, I didn't know it at the time, but what I was doing is I was building a real relationship with them. Um, and I love what you do. Like I, I, I am so happy that there are people like you out there that do what you do in the profession. And I like, it, it blows my mind because that's not a world I live in anymore. Um, and I just, I appreciate that. And just honestly, like want to say thank you because like you're in the fucking trenches and changing lives. So like, that's a big deal. And I love that. Thank you. Tell how, how many people are in roofers in recovery now? Um, it, it's hard to explain like, so, cause roofers, cause nobody's in roofers in recovery per se. So roofers in recovery in and itself is a nonprofit organization where yeah. we, where we raise money to send people to treatment in the last five, I got you, I got you. In, in the last four years, we've probably sent 50 people to treatment. Um, but in the last year, the organization structure has changed. Uh, we still do that. We still send people to treatment that are in, you know, our industry that we want to help. We also have online meetings for people to come to. We have an online Facebook community for people to be able to interact with each other. Um, but recently, the board has changed and the business has grown to where now we have actually purchased a facility in Southern Colorado that is going to be turned into an inpatient treatment center, a detox. Um, there's going to have a sober living community. And we're looking at buying properties all over the country to be able to have different rehab centers. So now there's a lot of people way fucking smarter than me that are part of the organization to be able to put those parts and pieces together because we wanted to impact people on a larger level. 
obviously those treatment centers aren't just for roofers and recovery, you know, patients are for everybody, but then it'll give roofers and recovery the opportunity to send more people because we'll be able to send approximately three for every one that we were sending before cost-wise, right? Because it's going to, you know, significantly decrease our cost to be able to send right. people. So, I mean, we have, you know, I mean, we have thousands of people in our online community, um, you know, that are interacting and, you know, we have meetings a couple of days a week where, you know, have 20, 30 people that come to meetings and stuff like that. But we've sent 50, 60 people to treatment over the last handful of years. But now we're trying to expand the scope to be able to help more and more people. That is, that is fantastic. I, um, I, I probably take, uh, out of every three or four people, I'll have one scholarship. Um, and so I, I have taken, God, I think it's 68 people to rehab in the past 15 years. And wow. like, like I actually escorted them. Mm-hmm. I've done, um, well over a hundred interventions. Um, and it has, it's been more work, uh, than I could, you know, ask for. Yeah. Um, so, and sometimes it's, it's overwhelming with, yep. with, with how much, with, with how much need there is. And, you know, there, there really aren't a lot of resources and, right. uh, there's a lot of people, you know, willing to help. There's a lot of people wanting to get involved, but I always tell them, I'm like, you know, not, not to, to be crude, but this just comes down to money. You know, it comes down to dollars and cents because rehab costs a lot of money. In this a lot country. of money. A lot of money, and yep. it's mostly red tape, insurance, and regulations. Yep. And um, uh, it, we had a great facility in Connecticut for the longest time, which was the first facility, and it's called uh, High Watch Farm. And High Watch Farm was started by uh, Bill Bill W. So um, th- that's that's a that's a pretty good pedigree. And High Watch was my go to place for a long time because they didn't have a hospital. And because they didn't have a hospital, you couldn't detox there. Wow. Because you couldn't detox there, the cost of it was really low. Yeah. So I, you couldn't get insurance to pay for it. But at the price that it was, you could get six or seven family members, you know, everybody throwing in a thousand, maybe two thousand dollars, and yeah. you could have enough money to, to, to send, you know, a little Ricky to, to, to rehab. Um, but it's, it's the places that have the hospital facilities already. And as you know, with, with opiates, but really with alcohol, uh, alcohol withdrawal is very, very dangerous. And you almost definitely need to be in a hospital when you're doing that, or at least yeah. in a, a facility, facility that, that has um, medical personnel on staff. Because yeah. uh, I've seen people who have had grand mal seizures, and uh, it, that, that's nowhere. That, that you certainly don't want that to happen to anybody. Correct. But... Um, I tell you what, I'm going to, I actually, ironically have, uh, I have an intervention to get to, All right. uh, late, late, later today. This has been great, and, uh, man. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I, I, I really am. Uh, I, I'm really happy to meet you and, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm very happy. Again, you and I have a very, very similar story mm-hmm. and, uh, I think we're, we're both out there doing the same thing for the same reason, for the same kind of people. Yep. And uh it 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 feels good having a having a uh ha- having a brother out there. So thanks Eric for for being on the program. Uh I hope to uh talk to you again soon and I, I wish you the best of luck with uh with uh, Roofers in Recovery and I uh I wish you you and your rehab uh the best of luck and if uh we could partner someday in the future uh I would love to. Um I have a television show 
that is in development right now um, that sort of, not sort of, but it, it's going to show this sort of avenue that I have between the legal system and recovery and essentially follow me through dealing with one of my clients from when mm. they first come in as a client then I identify that they have some sort of an issue and then we take them to rehab and then we see if we can get the judge kind of like in your experience, just imagine in your experience, if that was filmed, how dramatic that would be. Super. So that's what we're trying to do. And uh, I'm partnering now. I've partnered with six different recovery centers uh, who are going to be accepting uh, scholarships uh, because we're going to be doing this for poor people a lot like you. And uh, I'm going to be giving them free legal um, work, and then we're going to be getting them um, some rehab and then some aftercare as well. And hopefully, we could save some lives. But so in the future, if we could work and uh, work together in any way, uh, I look forward to that. I love that, man. Thank you very much, and I, I would love to do that as well. I hope that we stay connected. Me too. Take care, buddy. Thank you.